Our Lord and God, we come before you in the matchless, mighty, wonderful, glorious, holy, righteous, perfect, and true name of Jesus Christ. We honor, praise, and lift you up this morning. Give to us listening ears. Give to us, we pray, obedient feet, believing hearts. Help us through the power of your spirit, through the inspiration of your word. Help us to listen, obey, and believe. We pray that you are glorified in this series, that you alone are praised and lifted up. I decrease that you may increase, become less so that you can become more. Be glorified that your people not hear me or see me, but hear and see you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. I greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and welcome you on this Lord's Day as we begin our new series in the book of Genesis, chapters 1 through 3. And we have done something for you this morning. There's an outline. So if you can see better on this side, go ahead and move over to this side. If you're fine where you are, then then you're fine where you are. But there are plenty of seats in the front row that you can go and take advantage of. You will need to at least... Uh, take note, careful note of what you see here on the screen. As we begin, <clears throat> I'd like to ask you, you can unfreeze that because you're going to have to put that up there in a moment. I would like to ask you a question as we begin. So think carefully, think deeply. Here's your question. What do you most immediately think of when you think of the book of Genesis? What do you most, this is a, a, uh, a hypothetical question, so you don't need to answer it out loud. What do you most immediately think of when you think of the book of Genesis? What comes to your mind? Some may say it uh, depends on the chapter reference. What if there was no chapter reference? What if we just said the book of Genesis? What do you most immediately think of? For some of you, your most immediate thought may be Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And still, for, for others, your most immediate thought may be the fall of man in Genesis 3. Or Noah and God's judgment upon mankind in Genesis 7. And still others may immediately think of Abraham's covenant with God in Genesis 17. Or Joseph's reunion with his brothers in Genesis 45. Whether you think of these stories from Genesis or others that are not mentioned, each one of us must confess that we automatically think of certain texts. When we come to the book of Genesis, but I would like you to ask yourself, is the book of Genesis merely a collection of random accounts of lives of notable men and women, or is there an actual intentional structure to the book of Genesis? Is there something intentional about the book of Genesis or is it completely random? 
Why is that an important question to note at the outset of this lesson? Because I believe that first question, what do you think of when you think of the book of Genesis, helps you and I to prepare our minds to think deeper when this second question comes, which is this. Brothers and sisters, what is the book of Genesis all about? What is the book of Genesis all about? What was God, the Holy Spirit, purposing? What was his purpose in inspiring the hand of Moses to pen these words in the book of Genesis? Is God purposing in the book of Genesis to to answer all of the questions that we have about the world? Does God answer all the questions that we have about the world in the book of Genesis? Is the book of Genesis purposing to answer the questions that we have concerning the existence of dinosaurs? Or to show us that the world is round and not flat? Is the purpose of the book of Genesis to answer the questions about the existence of aliens? Or to answer questions about the age of the earth? No. That is not the purpose and intention of the book of Genesis. So then, what is the purpose? What is the function, if you will, of the book of Genesis? If it is purposeful, and we know that it is, what is the purpose of the book of Genesis? Have you ever thought about that? Do you care? I hope that you do. We will be discussing these two questions this morning. You may be asking, (coughs) why are we even going through the book of Genesis 1 through 3? Isn't it pretty basic? Creation, fall, that's it. Brothers and sisters, we acknowledge that the book of Genesis does contain the account of the creation of the world and the fall of man. And that there are many other intricacies that are often overlooked and often underappreciated. But I confess that our study in the book of Genesis, especially the first three chapters, is largely due to the great impact that that book of Genesis has had on my life over the past one year. It's become foundational in my understanding of God and in my understanding of the rest of God's holy scriptures. Our prayer for you is that as we study through the book of Genesis, that you will be introduced to, confronted by, And stand in awe of the God who created the heavens and the earth. We pray that you gain a better picture, a better vision of the, and you're going to hear this word a lot, meta-narrative. Meta-narrative of the Bible. Meta meaning big. Narrative meaning story. That we pray that you gain a bigger, better, clearer picture of the big story of the Bible. The Bible is a unified story. That unfolds progressively from Genesis to Revelation. And yet, where do people most often want to begin to begin reading when they begin reading the Bible? Revelation. (laughs) Most often when people begin to read the Bible, they want to go to the most. In their mind, uh, mysterious and it is mysterious and often spooky because it can be spooky book of the Bible. And they begin at the end rather than at the beginning. 
So I want to encourage you. If you are thinking, should I not begin in Revelation? No, brothers and sisters. As a matter of fact, I had a brother who said to me recently, we were meeting together and he said, I, I hope you don't think I'm weird about this. And, and I, I just want to be, be clear and make sure I'm doing the right thing. But I haven't read Revelation yet. Is that wrong? Should I be reading Revelation? I said, have you read Genesis? Well, I'm reading through Genesis right now. Well, brother, you don't want to know the end before you know the beginning. So praise God that you're reading the beginning. If you understand the beginning, you'll better understand the end. Amen. Another question. Is there enough information? Is there enough content in Genesis 1 through 3 to do an extensive series? Yes, of course there is. In this series, with God's help, we will be diving into the very depths of biblical truths, such as the doctrine of God's being, our being, God's knowledge, our knowledge, God's will, the Trinity in creation, the role of the Father in creation, the role of the Son in creation, the role of the Holy Spirit in creation. And brothers and sisters, that's just the first verse. We will be diving through as my brother Isaiah says, Pastor Zay likes to say, we will be launching our boats out into the depths of God's great mysterious wonder. There is much that we will be exploring. And, and in a sense, we will be studying through the very first seven chapters of our confession. In case you're wondering, this will not be a short series. So do not ask me, when will we be done? And finally, dear brothers and sisters, we do pray that as we study through the series, you will become more grounded in the reformed faith as your understanding of God and first things is shaped by scripture. This series is called first things. Do you long to know more about God? Do you realize that in knowing more about God, you gain a better, clearer picture about God, but you also at the same time get a, a better, clearer picture of yourself in light of God. It is wonderful and wonderfully often amazing to sit sometimes and watch people like Isaiah and John teach on God. And sometimes as I watch from the back, the body language is often shut off because we've been talking about as of late, just God, the Trinity this past week. Uh, God's holiness. It is very easy to shut our brains off when we talk about God, because we often start asking the question, what about me? What about me? Where am I? Understand the better, you know, God, the better you see God, the better and clearer picture you get of God. The more you will understand yourself. But forget about you. Just focus on God. Forget about you. Learn all that you can about the God that you say you love, serve and believe in. Make your mind disciplined to say, I want to know who my God is. Brothers and sisters, what more can bless your life and help you to live a more God glorifying life than seeing God clearer and understanding him better? This is our hope as we study through the series. And we trust that the Holy Spirit will accompany his word Amen. to accomplish all that he desires to accomplish in our lives. So this morning we will consider just two points 
First, the form of Genesis. The form of Genesis. Next page there, brother. There it is. The form of Genesis. And with that first point, we are returning to the initial question. What is it that you think of when you think of the book of Genesis? Is the book of Genesis a collection of random accounts that are randomly assorted? Or is there intentional form to the book of Genesis? Now, when we speak of form, we speak of shape, structure, form. And we must be careful to understand all of Scripture. But in this case, Genesis 1 through 3 on its own terms and as it presents itself. Amen. You must understand all of Scripture. And in this case, Genesis 1 through 3, on its own terms and as it presents itself. In order to understand the form of Genesis, we must understand that the Bible or the Bible understand the book as a whole. So in order to understand all of Genesis, you must understand the whole book as a whole. Amen. So what is the, stru- the structure, shape, or form of the book of Genesis? Go to Genesis chapter 1. I'd like to show you something that maybe you've noticed, maybe you have never noticed. Have you ever noticed that in Genesis chapter 1, the first chapter of Genesis, it seems to end somewhat abruptly. It, it almost seems to, to, out of nowhere end. What do I mean? Why do I say that the first chapter of Genesis seems to end abruptly? Look at Genesis. We see the creation of the heavens and the earth, the preceding six days of creation. And then look at verse 31 of chapter one. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was kind of good. Very good. All that God had made was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Is that the end of the chapter for your book? It is. The chapter seems to be abruptly ending. Why? Because it seems to be missing another day, does it not? What day could possibly be missing from the first chapter? You can talk back to me on that one. The seven day. All the front row people, praise God. It is almost as if the first chapter leaves out the seventh day. But in actuality, Genesis 1-1 continues to Genesis 2-3. Therefore, Genesis 1-1 to 2-3 is a unit. And we must couple them together because they belong together. So when you read Genesis 1-1 to 2-3... Keep in your mind that 1, 1 to 2, 3 is a unit and it belongs together with the rest of creation. <clears throat> God begins his work in Genesis 1, 1 of creation. And when does he complete that work? Genesis 2, 3. Genesis 2, 3. So God blessed the seven day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his works that he had done in creation. Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3 is going to be our first unit of text that we will explore starting next week. But after that, there's a shift in language. There's a shift in form, if you will. There's a shift in in the shape of the book. If you notice Genesis 2, 4, there's a transition. What does it say? 
Genesis 2.4. Look at your Bibles. Not let, not, or look up there. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. When they were created. In the day the Lord God made the heavens or the earth and the heavens. Do you see that transition there? Genesis 1.1 to 2.3 is presented as the story of creation. And then... We come to Genesis 2, 4, and we see an interesting phrase. These are the generations. Interesting. And it is important. Why? Because it is a key phrase to understanding the structure, form, or shape of the book of Genesis. This phrase, these are the generations, is reused throughout the book of Genesis to signal divisions. Important divisions. They're used, in a sense, as Chapter dividers or dividing chapters. The phrase, these are, are the generations, is always followed by an important name. This, this is a story of the heavens and the earth. Genesis 5.1. Turn there, please. Maybe one or two pages over. Genesis 5.1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Genesis 6.9. And they were all there. This is the generations of who? Noah, Genesis 6:10. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japhet. Genesis 11:10. These are the generations of Shem. Genesis 11:27. These are the generations of Terah, Abraham's father. Genesis 25:12. These are the generations of Ishmael. Genesis 25:19. These are the generations of Isaac. Genesis 36, 1. These are the generations of Esau. Genesis 37, 2. These are the generations of Jacob. Do you see that? What does all of this mean? It means that Genesis is structured with this generational progress. That's doing what? It is tracing the family line of Adam. It is tracing the family line of Adam. It is also signaling signaling certain divisions. We begin with the heavens and the earth. And then it shifts to Adam and his descendants. From Adam and his descendants, you see the divisions of and description descriptions of other families. Adam, Noah, Shem, etc. There are ten. These are the generations. And what is Genesis doing? Is it random? Is it sporadic? No, it's completely intentional. It's completely intentional. So what is the form of the book of Genesis? Here's what it is. The structure. It is the tracking of two seeds. What is the structure? What is the form? What is the shape of Genesis? It is the structure or it is it is the tracking of two seeds. What seeds do you think it could be tracking? The seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman. The seed of the serpent, the seed of the of the woman or the city of God and the city of man. That is the form or structure of the book of Genesis. Why do you think you see Ishmael and his descendants and Jacob or Isaac? Why do you think you see Jacob and Esau? In the description of these are the generations. They are tracking the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. 
Now, if Genesis, if the first, if the first of those ten divisions begins at Genesis two four, then what is Genesis one one to two three? What is that about? If this is where it begins to track the the the, the line of the two seeds, then what is Genesis one one to two three? Because we must agree that it is completely different than what we see starting at Genesis 2-4. Amen? Are we all together? Okay. So then how do we describe Genesis 1-1 to 2-3? If we know that 2-4 onward is a tracking of two seeds, then what is Genesis 1-1 to 2-3? My grandmother on my father's side used to have this large Bible. Some of you guys carry around large Bibles. This large Bible, this large Bible was kept among the family photos. And I say it was kept among the family photos because it was as big as a family photo album. I can remember as a young boy thumbing through that Bible and being in awe of the great artistry that was depicted that or that depicted some of the great stories of the Bible. It was a Catholic Bible. At the beginning of every book, the first letter of every book had this beautifully pictured, uh, ornate letter. And then the rest of the letter, some of you Catholics are, I'm oh, sorry, uh, some of you old Catholics are, yes, you remember that Bible, don't you? That first letter, so then you know what I'm talking about. That first letter was, was beautifully decorated. It was completely different than every other letter that followed that first letter. And it was almost in a box. It was almost separated from the rest of the letters throughout the rest of that book. But that first letter was unique. Brothers and sisters, that is what Genesis 1-1 to 2-3 is, is like. It is this beautiful, wonderful picture introduces you to the rest of the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is much like that first letter. It's a divinely crafted archway that we must walk through in order to journey through the rest of the scriptures. Are you with me? Genesis 1 to 2, 3 is God's beautiful message to the world that everything that happens in this book is his story and God is its creator. Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3 is God saying to the world, this is my story. This is my world. I have created all things and I have made all things good. It is God's absolute claim of sovereignty over the entire world and all who dwell therein. We are created beings and God is our creator. The world is not functioning apart from God. No, God is the creator and sustainer of all things. He is moving and guiding and directing all things according to his purpose and for his glory. God is not aloof from the world. And at the same time, God is not super eminent in the world. You get that? Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3 is God saying, this is my world. And this is important for us to understand. Because we must be aware of the difference in the presentations as we move forward. Second question or second point. 
What then is the function of the book of Genesis? What is the function of the book of Genesis? Which returns us now to the second question that we proposed at the outset of this sermon. What is the purpose of the book of Genesis? Why was Genesis ever written? It may appear that the question has already been answered. That God is tracking two seeds, the seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman. But when we talk about what is the, the function of the book of Genesis, we, we are asking, what does it do? What is it seeking to accomplish? What is it? In order to understand Genesis 1 through 3 and all of the book of Genesis, you must place yourself in the historical context of the book of Genesis. Think about this. What's the historical context of the book of Genesis? Why was it written contextually? Who's the writer? Who wrote Genesis? Moses. The author of the book of Genesis is Moses. As a matter of fact, the author of the first five books of the Bible is Moses, called the Pentateuch, or the first five. Since Moses is the author, when was the book written? Well, it had to be written somewhere between the Exodus and entering into the land of Canaan. Right? Amen. After, at least after the Jews left Egypt. Therefore, again, Somewhere between the time of the Exodus and the wilderness wandering, if you will. How long were the children of Israel enslaved? 430 years. So we have the Israelite Jews in Egyptian bondage for 430 years. While they are there, who do they worship? What kind of of land do they live in? Do they live in a monotheistic land or a polytheistic land? They live in a polytheistic land. Who is leading the children of Israel during those 430 years? No one. There is no record of anyone, one figure, leading all of the children of Israel during the time that they are in bondage in Egypt. Now, there are leaders over tribes, but there is not one leader who stands up and leads all the people. So they are living in bondage in Egypt. They are living among a nation that worships many gods and they have no written revelation. There is no Bible. There are no scriptures. As far as we know, there were no leaders as well. So then what is the religious condition? What is the religious state of the Israelites as they are living in Egypt? It's weak. No written revelation, no leaders. And yet in Exodus 1:17 and Exodus 1:21, the Bible tells us that the Hebrew midwives feared God. In Exodus 3:7 and 3:9, the Bible tells us that the Israelites cried out to God. Now, ask yourself this. How well did they know the God that they were crying out to? How orthodox were those cries? To the God who created all things, how informed, knowledgeable were those cries as they cried out to God? The scriptures answer these questions for us. Just days after the Israelites were freed from their oppression, 
they turn from worshiping the one true and living God to worshiping a golden craft, a golden calf, which they fashioned themselves. What does all that say about the relationship that the Israelites had with God? If anything, it tells us this, that their knowledge of God, their worship of God and their information of God was not well informed and not very orthodox. Meaning their spiritual condition was very, very weak. Their devotion to God. The one true and living God, their devotion to their to the God of their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob was largely lost, probably even unknown to these Israelites. These Israelites had just left Egypt, a land committed to idolatry and paganism, a land that they had lived their entire lives. Paganism is all they know. Worshiping the sun, moon, stars, bulls, and goats is all they know. It's normal to them. It's their normal way of life for the children of Abraham, the children of Isaac, and the children of Jacob. And now, God was preparing these people to enter a promised land, to live in a world that was surrounded by nations who worshiped many gods, just like the nation that they had been liberated from. So then we return to the point. What is the function of this book? Put yourself, yourselves in those Israelites' sandals. Bondage is all you've known. Polytheism is all you've known. The worship of many gods is all you've known. And now a man named Moses comes on the scene. And he says, I am sent here by God. The one true and living God. His name is I am that I am Yahweh. He is the God of your forefathers. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Your forefathers worshipped this God. He has heard your cries. He has sent me, Moses, as your deliverer. He is God's man. And he has come equipped with signs and wonders. Things that these people have never seen before. That no one has ever seen before. And now... Pharaoh has let the people of God go. You are free. God has laid his claim, has laid his claim on you by liberating you, freeing you from your oppressor. You now belong to him. What are you thinking? What's going through your mind? As you've been liberated from this God who is supposedly the God of your forefathers, what's going through your mind? Who is this God? That's got to be one of the very first questions that you ask. Who is this God? Brothers and sisters, that is the function of this book. That is the purpose of this book. To answer the questions for the people who have been liberated from their bondage, from the bondage of their oppressor. oppressor. Who is your God? This is your God. God, the Holy Spirit, inspired Moses to write this book in order to show and to describe to the people of God who their God is. The book of of Genesis proclaims, behold, people of God, this is your God. This is the one who brought you out of Egypt. This is the one who heard your cries and delivered you from the hand of your oppressors. This is your God. Brothers and sisters. 
We must not read the book of Genesis seeking to find out all of the answers that atheists hurl at believers. No, because that's not the purpose of this book. We must not read this book seeking to find out the age of the universe or to discover discover whether or not dinosaurs roam the earth with man. We must not read the book of Genesis through a 21st century lens. Why? Because that's not the function or intention of this book. We must read this book through the theological and religious lens of the Israelite exodus and conquest of the promised land of Canaan. This is the intention of the book to show the people who had been freed from their bondage, the bondage of their oppressors, who they should worship and who it is they owe their allegiance to. The God who has created all things. Again, the Israelites had just left the land of Egypt where they worshiped many gods, a sun god, a moon god, rain god, stars, animals, etc. And how does the book of Genesis begin? You've left a country where you worship all created things. And then the very first verse of the very first book says this in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth you're an, you're a Hebrew who's grown up in Egypt who all you know is worship every single thing worship the ant worship the leaf worship the tree worship the god and uh, worship the sun gods and now you're reading the first verse that says and God created all those things You mean to tell me that there's one God who created all these other things that I've been worshiping all my life? Who is this God? Who is this God? You've got to be asking these questions. There is one God who created all things. One God over all gods. Wait a minute. You mean only one God? And this God who rescued us is God. He did not witness the creation of the world. He is the creator of the world. Instantly, all of the polytheism that you've grown up with has been vanished, destroyed, demolished. With the words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Not only that, but you've been placed into a covenant relationship with God, almost an arranged marriage with God. He is the supreme creator. He has bound himself to you and you are now bound to him. Whether you like it or not. Now think about the book of Genesis. And the purpose of it. Are your lenses adjusting now? Are you adjusting your lenses to this new lens? Of what the purpose of the book of Genesis is really all about. These people had never known God. And now they're reading and hearing of the one who has made all things and made all things very good. God has shown love as they read. Kindness as they read. Protection as they read. And mercy as they read to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. They are learning for the first time who they are. They are learning about the rich heritage of their ancestors. And the God who has purposed for them to be And who God has purposed them to be in this world. And not only that. They are learning about the history. Not just of their own ancestors. But the history of the world in general. This is how it all began. 
Israel, this is your God. Israel, this is the history of creation. Israel, this is the history of your people. And God has also called you to be his own. Behold, your God. Now today, we are not in, we have not experienced slavery as Israel has experienced slavery. But we have been enslaved to sin. And we know what it is to be rescued from the bondage, not of Egypt, but from the bondage of sin from our Lord Jesus Christ, who rescued us from the bondage of sin. God has given us promises as well. Not of Canaan, but of a spiritual paradise to which God is indeed taking us there to glory. So, brothers and sisters, let us desire to know more about our God. As the people of Israel desire to know more about their God. Let us long to hear God's word. Let us long to hear about the perfections of God, his mercy, his kindness and his love and his promises. What should we gain from this series? What kind of response should we have at the end when we get to Genesis chapter three, the very end? Number one. We should have a response of praise and awe and joy. Praise and awe and joy. Psalm 100 verse 1. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. He who has made us and we He who has made us and we are his, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Brothers and sisters, our shepherd is the creator. Our shepherd is the creator. The fact that God is our shepherd should stir up in us praise, should stir up in us awe of our God and joy that we belong to him and he belongs to us. Secondly, humility and submission. What do you think the Israelites were thinking when they first read that God is the creator of all things? Oh, they must have been completely humbled. This is the one. And did he not display through signs and wonders that he alone is God? Job experienced the same kind of humility in Job 38. Job faced with many questions when he suffered all sorts of pains that were ordained by God. And when his complaints were exhausted, God, the creator of all things, responded in Job 38, 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding who determined its measurements. Surely, you know, the Lord continues onward, pressing Job and pressing Job for the next three chapters. And what is the response of Job? Well, what would you say? What would you say if God asked you, where were you? What can you say? You can say nothing. Your mouth is closed. All of our responses is simply this. We bow our head in submission to the God who has made us and made all things. He is the creator. We are his creation. We pray 
that as we are confronted with such truths, that our response will be like that of Job. You can do all things. Your plans cannot be thwarted. I despise myself. I repent in ashes and dust. Humility and submission. Third and finally, we pray that at the end of this series, you will have a greater trust and greater confidence in God. Imagine you are an Israelite with all of these questions. You've seen devastating plagues. You've seen a sea parted. You ever thought about that? You've seen us. Not only did you see the sea parted, but you walked on the dry land as both sides. Were, I love that scene in the Prince of Egypt. Remember that? And then the lightning flashes and you see the whale. Imagine you are walking on that dry land. You've seen all of this. You've been guided by a pillar of fire and a, and a, a, a cloud during the day. And you may still have questions. Where are we going? Can he get us there? Is he good? I know he has been good to our forefathers, but will he continue to be good? And God gives us great confidence in his word. Fear not, Isaiah 54, for you, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth. And the reproach of your widowhood, you will remember no more. Israel, the Lord your God is your husband. Your maker is your husband. Fear not. Don't be afraid of man. He stirs up ocean waves to roar. He causes winds to blow to and fro. Trust in the Lord. He has formed and shaped all things according to the counsel of his will. For his glory, he hath ordained, foreordained all things to come to pass. You can trust him. You can place your confidence in him. Your confidence can be strong and it can be unshaken as you trust in God. We pray that as we come to the end of this series, these three responses will be emanating from your lives. To God alone be the glory. Let us pray.